6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of 2 Peter, chapter 2. But I've been, in, I've been through this for six decades, and there are, are, there are ample conservative, competent scholars that do underscore exactly the position that we present. That doesn't mean everybody agrees. There are some people with a different view. But clearly, the text indicates that these angels did something that was highly inappropriate and, in fact, is much discussed both here and by Jude, as well as the Old Testament. Angels of sin. And what happened to them? They were, God spared not the angels of sin, but cast them down to Tartarus. It's, it's translated hell here. Now, normally the word hell is translating the, the Greek word Hades. In the Old Testament, Sheol, and the New Testament, it's Hades. In either case, that word refers to the abode of the departed spirits, not grave. It's sometimes translated, Sheol is sometimes translated grave. There's a difference between Sheol and grave. A grave can be owned by someone. It's a space, a physical space. Has maybe a tombstone on it or whatever. That's a grave. Sheol is the region that this departed spirit is in. The Greek term for the same thing, essentially, is Hades. And normally, when you see hell in the English Bible, it's translating the Greek word Hades or the Hebrew word Sheol. Here, the word that's being translated is Tartarus. It's the only time it appears in the Bible. So there's a little mystery. What does the word Tartarus really mean? It turns out that Tartarus is a Greek term signifying a region that was as far below Hades as Hades was below the earth. I don't want to go there. <laughs> That's pretty heavy stuff. Where do we get that? From Homer. Homer uses the term in his literature. And Josephus also makes reference of it. The word Tartarus was a Greek term that conceived of a place that is as far below Hades as... Now, the, the word that might be, that's generally associated with by many scholars is the abuso. The abuso is the bottomless pit. We see that come up in the book of Revelation. And it could very well be that this term and the abuso are co-relative. That is, they both refer to something far deeper than just the usual Hades. And that's the, that seems to be the intent here. Now, see, in Greek mythology, it was a place of punishment that the departed spirits of the very wicked when especially the rebellious gods like Tantalus and in their mythology, if they were really, really, really bad, they went to Tartarus rather than just to Hades. That, that's, that's what the term linguistically is intended to connote here. And m most, most uh, conservative scholars that deal with this tend to regard it as equivalent in some sense as the term abuso, the bottomless pit that is spoken of. Now, the term abuso implies the center of the earth because that's the only place that every, every direction from there is up. There's no down from there. If you're in the center of the earth, you can't go any further down 
If you go further, you're going up again. You follow me? It's a, it's a term out of mathematics called topology. But anyway, let's move on. They, he delivered them into the chains of darkness. We do see reference to these creatures, these angels that sinned. Not just angels that happened to sin, but sinned in a very particular way as Genesis 6 details. And they're chained for a future judgment. Some people suspect that these angels that are chained here that are leashed in Je Revelation 9 might be related there. Could be. The word that's used in the Bible for the offspring of these fallen angels and human women is the Nephilim. And that's what the allusion in Genesis 6, first four verses. And also it's alluded to in Jude, verses 6 and 7. And it seems to corroborate the identity of the Benaiah Elohim. The Benaiah Elohim is a term for sons of God. That term in the Old Testament is used of a direct creation of God. Adam was a son of God. All of us are sons of Adam. Okay, not unless we're born again. That's why the term born again is used. But that term, Benaiah Elohim, is always used of angels in the Old Testament. Angels are a direct creation. And there's a very strange passage, and it's not our burden here to try to go through that whole thing, but I do encourage you to do your homework on Genesis 6 if you haven't done it in the past. But the unnatural hybrid offspring of this intercourse was the Nephilim, which in the Hebrew comes from the verb nephal, meaning the fallen ones. They're also called heroes. They're also called giants. In the Greek, it's called gigantes, which doesn't mean giants. Strange. People think it does. No, it happens to mean earthborn. Gigas, like Giga, born of the earth. And it's generally regarded as Satan's attempt to adulterate the human race. God had revealed that the Redeemer would come as an offspring of Adam. Satan's strategy apparently was to adulterate the human line to avoid that. That's why the flood was sent. And there's a whole thing here that you, you really won't understand the flood of Noah, unless you understand that Noah was perfect in his generations. Verse 9 of chapter 6 of Genesis. That's the, tamim is the Hebrew word meaning a physical defect in his genealogy. He had a DNA problem. He did not have a DNA. He apparently was distinctive in that he did not have a corruption of this, this uh, mischief on Satan's part. He may not have been the only one, but he was uncorrupted. He and and so he and his, four, uh, his uh, three sons and their four wives are miraculously protected by the, the ark and all of that. But we go on here, verse 5 of Second Peter 2, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Think about that. God wiped out the entire planet Earth. Some scientists estimate there may have been two billion people on the Earth at that time. You take the, the progeny and the genealogies and try to make some assumptions of how they multiplied and so forth, you can quickly justify a number in the neighborhood of two billion. That's a lot of people to drown. God erased the blackboard, so to speak. He saved eight and got rid of the rest. That's pretty drastic. And you don't really understand all that until you understand that there was a contamination of the gene pool by Satan. And that was God's approach. And the reason that's so important to understand, you won't understand the flood and all that, but more than that, also, that wasn't the only time it happened. Because Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 through 4 says, it happened then and also after that. This happens again. Apparently, 
in Genesis 17 and so forth, where God tells Abraham that his descendants are going to be away for four centuries and then return to this land, that gave Satan four centuries to plant a, line, a minefield. And some of the tribes, not all, but some of the tribes that populated Canaan, there were four specific tribes that Joshua was told to wipe out every man, woman, and child of certain tribes. That's pretty weird stuff. If you're a New Testament reader reading the Old Testament, you have a tough time coming to terms with that. Unless you understand that there was a repeat of this gene pool problem. The sons of Anak, Goliath, and his four brothers, and so on. You need to understand the background here, or you'll miss part of the, the tone of what's going on. In any case, God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness. That's interesting. See, by the way, only Noah's, as I say, his genealogy was uncontaminated. Verse 9 of chapter 6 indicates that it was free of defects. Tamim was a physical defect. So he spared, he spared him and his family. He was a preacher of righteousness. We don't think of Noah as a preacher. Do you realize that the flood of Noah was preached on for four generations? Flood of Noah did not come as a surprise. It was preached on for four generations. And Enoch was told when his son was born that as long as he's alive, that judgment would be withheld. And that all ties together if you still do your homework there. And he's a preacher of righteousness. A, a preacher is a declarer. We think of a preacher as someone that's seeking repentance. Okay. I don't know. May, Noah may have. But he primarily is declaring. He's a declarer. And his entire life was a testimony. As he builds this huge thing in his driveway. 120 years. That's a long time. Every nail that Noah drove into that ark was a sermon. Every nail that he drove in was a sermon, declaring that a judgment was coming. And you, you can just see the neighbors laugh at him. This senile old man building this. It didn't rain, you know. See, the rain, it didn't rain on the earth until the flood. Rain was not something they experienced. There was a dew at night that Different situation. He says, it's going to rain. It's going to flood. Yeah, get serious. Now, by the way, it's interesting. We learn a lot about the flood of Noah by reading the allusions to this in Second Peter 2 and in the book of Jude. I couldn't resist adding some. There's lots of places in the Bible where you learn what really happened by an allusion to it. For example... The prophecy, did you know that the oldest prophecy uttered by a prophet is of the second coming of Jesus Christ and it was uttered before the flood? Now you won't find that in the book of Genesis. Jude makes reference to it, the prophecy of Enoch. Verses 14 and 15 of the book of Jude describe a prophecy, apparently, that Enoch uttered before the flood of Noah. And it's about the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's, that, that's a mind blow. Yeah, that shatters a lot of presumptions a lot of people have about the Bible. But we learn about that by a reference in Jude. Paul tells us words of Christ that are not in the Gospels. Paul tells us things that Christ said that you will not find in the four Gospels. You'll find the book of Acts chapter 20. I'll let you look it up. <laughs> I may surprise you, because Paul spent time with Christ that's not recorded in the, in the Gospels. 
Remember the two, the two magicians in Egypt when Moses throws the staff down and it becomes a snake and all of that business? You know the story from the book of Exodus. You don't know the names of the two magicians. The two magicians come up in 2 Timothy 3. Paul tells you the names of those two magicians. Where do you get that? He didn't get it from reading the Torah, the five books of Moses. They're not in the five books of Moses, to my knowledge. I don't think so. But somehow, Paul knows those two magicians. So we learned that Janice and Jambres, the names of those two magicians, from Paul's letter to Timothy. How did Paul know? I don't know. But I believe he did. There's another one that fascinates me. In the epistle of James, we learn that Elijah shut the heavens for three and a half years. You say, well, I remember that. No, you don't. In the Old Testament, it reveals that Elijah stopped the drought by causing it to rain after three and a half years. What you don't pick up is that it was Elijah's decree that caused the, the drought. Elijah stopped the heavens for three and a half years and then called the rain. We know he called the rain after three and a half years because that's recorded, you know, in, in the Scripture. 1 Kings 17.1 and 18.1. See, they, it doesn't link the drought in Ahab's reign to the prayers of the prophet. But in James 5.17, and also the Lord, you always buy two witnesses, right? James 5.17, and in Luke 4.25, Jesus makes reference to the fact that it was Elijah that shut the, rain, shut the heavens in the first place, and then that after three and a half years caused the rain. And why is that important? Because that gives you the identity of the two, one of the two witnesses in Revelation 11. That's a power that was uniquely Elijah's. Not just that he caused it to rain, but that he had the power to shut the heavens for three and a half years. And that's exactly what one of the two witnesses do. If you study the two witnesses in Revelation 11, you'll discover four powers that are attributed to the two guys. Two of them are attributed to Moses, distinctly, and two of them to Elijah. And for that reason, we infer... We may be wrong, but most of us have a conservative bent here, believe, we infer, that the two witnesses in Revelation 11 are Moses and Elijah for lots of reasons. That's why they were present at Mount Transfiguration. It was a staff meeting. Both of them had their, their ministries interrupted, and they have now given a chance to complete. Kind of interesting. Okay, we're down to verse 6. We're making progress. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. So Sodom and Gomorrah, destroyed. We all know that. And we're all reminded by Billy Graham's classic quip just a couple of decades ago. He said, if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Great quip. Very perceptive. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah. They must be important because they're mentioned seven times in each of the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're held up as an example, as almost an idiom in our language. Here, Peter's reference is a warning to you and me. Now, one small point I'll make. Um, there is a quote that we find in uh, the book of Jude that appears to come out of the book of Enoch. And because that, the book of Enoch is a collection of rabbinical writings in the second century B.C. And it's a very useful book for two reasons. For grammar, 
and for vocabulary. It tell, and it tells us what the rabbis believed in those days. It's not regarded as an inspired book of the canon. Well, how do you explain Jude quoting from it? I don't. I don't think Jude was quoting from Enoch. I think Enoch and Jude are quoting from a third source that's been lost. Just because Jude seems to quote from the book of Enoch does not, as many people presume, somehow authenticate the book of Enoch. Because they both can be quoting from a third source. That's my real point. Not a big deal. We'll move on. <coughs> Sodom and Gomorrah. We want to understand something about Sodom and Gomorrah. Most of us know that in one hour, kavum, it was wiped out. Let's examine a little bit about this. Because there's lessons here for us. Because Peter points out that God delivered just Lot. He's calling him just, by the way. Isn't that amazing? Lot is a righteous person. Yeah. Vexed with the filthy conversation or behavior of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. So Lot lived among them and was upset day by day by day. day from day to day. He sat in the gate, we know from Genesis 19. So he must have been a part of the city council. That's what they met at the gate. That was the, like their city hall. Lot appears to have been an alderman of the city in a sense. That righteous man, here in this word of God, we have Lot, with all his problems, declared righteous. Wow. He was in the wrong place. And because he was righteous, he was in a state of vexation. If you live in the city of Las Vegas and you're a Christian, you'll be unhappy there. If you can live in a city like that, with that environment, um, and, and comfortable there, you've got a problem. A lot of righteous men, no, he was in the wrong place. And, the, and because he was, he was, he was uh, vexed day by day. Are you still shocked by sinful things? When you channel switch and encounter a movie on television that you didn't plan to see. Do you get shocked by what you see? Does that, that upset you? Or is your conscience dulled to sin? Do you have apathy towards today's moral standards? Or do they shock you? Watch out for that. It could never be said of Lot that by faith he dwelt in Sodom. No. He dwelt there in spite of his faith, not because of his faith. That's it. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Yet he was saved out of it. We're going to get a very important lesson here as we examine carefully how Lot is delivered here. Let's go back and refresh our memory, not of Genesis 19, which is where Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. The chapter before then has one of the most amusing negotiations, I think, in the Bible. Starting about in chapter 18 of Genesis, verse 20. The Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me, and if not, I will know. So God's been called to look into this thing. And the men turned their faces from thence. This is when Abram is receiving the two angels and the Lord, these three visitors, by the oaks of Mamre in Genesis 18. That's the scene here. The men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom, and Abraham stood yet before the Lord. There are three people. 
The Lord and two angels. They visit with Abraham. He, he treats them with dinner. By the way, it's a non-kosher dinner. Read the text carefully. He served meat and dairy together. Let your Jewish friends explain that. I can't. Anyway, move on. The two angels go on to run an errand in Sodom and Gomorrah. But the Lord stays with Abraham. And let's see what happens here. Abraham drew near and said, Will thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? That's a good question. Peradventure there be 50 righteous within the city. Will thou also destroy and not spare the place for 50 righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner. Abraham is advising the Lord. Get this? That's called chutzpah. <laughs> to slay the righteous with the wicked and, and that the righteous should be as the wicked? That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? This is Abraham talking to the Lord. I think this is a right. I wish I had this skill of putting a, you know, a good New York Jewish accent on this. That happened. I don't have that skill. Some of my friends can do that so well. I wish I had that skill. I can't. But you really can hardly not want, give this a good Jewish accent. The Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Wow, that's quite a statement. Fifty. The Lord will spare it for fifty. Abraham's not finished. Abraham answered and said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust. You know, I, 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 I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. This is Abraham talking about himself, right? Peradventure shall there lack five of the fifty righteous. Wilt thou destroy all the city for lack of five? And he said, if I find there 40 and 5, I will not destroy it. Well, that's pretty cool, okay? Abraham's on a roll here. He spake unto them yet again and said, peradventure there shall be 40 found there. And he, God, said, I will not do it for the 40's sake. And Abraham said to him, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Peradventure there shall be 30 found there. He said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And Abram said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak of the Lord. Peradventure there shall be 20 found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for 20's sake. So, so far so good, right? Abram does it one more time. He said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet but this once. Peradventure 10 shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. Now the big question is, Abraham didn't go on. What if there's only one there? What do you think the answer is? We're going to find out in the next chapter. If there's just one there. Who's still there in Sodom? Lot. Is Lot walking in faith? No. Is he righteous? Yes. Wow. The Lord went on his way, and as soon as he had left communing with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Genesis 19, next chapter. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'll skip through the whole sordid detail of the homosexuals wanting to get their hands on these two angels, where Lot even offers them his daughters. 
But they blind the people and take care of that and get them out of there. But I want you to notice something that many people miss. As you look at verse 17, 18. Came to pass when they had brought them forth abroad. And he said, escape for thy life. Look not behind thee. Neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain lest thou be consumed. This is the angel counseling Lot and his family. And Lot said to them, oh, not so, my Lord. <laughs> Behold, now thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast showed unto me in, the, in saving my life. And I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me, and I die. Behold, now this city, pointing to another one, that is near to flee to, and it is a little one. Oh, let me escape thither. Is it not just a little one? And my soul shall live. Lot's negotiating with this angel. He doesn't want to go the distance. There's a small city nearby. Can, and won't I be all right there? That's what he's pushing for. Okay. Notice what happens here. And he said, MC, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow this city, this little one, which thou hast spoken. Haste thee, escape thither. Now get this is what everybody misses. For I cannot do anything till thou come thither. That's an interesting verse. The angels weren't doing Lot and his family a favor by getting them out of town as a gesture to them. No, it was a requirement. The angels could not do their job destroying the city until he got out of there. You miss that if you read it casually. The angel says to Lot, haste thee, escape there, for I cannot do anything till thou become thither. See, that answers the implied question of the previous chapter. What if there's just one left? He'll get out of there. You see, I think the wrath of God cannot descend on the planet Earth until the church has been removed in the harpazo. That's what this tells me. Not everybody agrees with me. That's just one person's view. Study, do your own study. Come to your own conclusions. Anyway, therefore the name of the city is called Zor, and the sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zor. The Lord reigned upon Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of those cities and that which grew up on the ground. But his wife, Lot's wife, looked back from behind him and became a pillar of salt. The word became there is a transitive verb, an active verb with an object. She became a pillar of salt. It's not a verb of being, it's a verb of action. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Peter. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.